From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Brittany Luce. And I'm Eric Eddings. So every now and again, we come across a story that is so amazing, so fun, so unbelievable, mm. that we just have to share it. And here is one of those stories. It's told by a friend and colleague of ours, a fellow podcaster, who also happened to be one of the biggest entertainment lawyers in hip-hop. But his life almost didn't end up that way. If it wasn't for one fateful night in a place that was actually meant for parking cars. This is the kind of story you want to just sit back and let wash over you, almost like a warm blanket. (laughs) So, dear listener, sit back and enjoy. My name is Reggie Osei. I'm also known as Combat Jack. This is the story of how I got accepted uh, into Georgetown Law School while hanging out at the Paradise Garage. Paradise Garage was this members-only club, but it was this actual garage. And, you know, the, the, the mystique about the Paradise Garage is if you went alone, if you went with a crew and no one had a membership, you couldn't get in. There was always people like, yo, can you get me in? Like, I, you know, it was always people trying to, you know, hassle and negotiate. There was always a massive line in front of the Paradise Garage. What made me a club kid was um, the sense of belonging. Like, I finally found a place that I considered a home away from home. I was kind of like aimless in terms of like what, where I would be the following year. I was a student at uh, Cornell University, um, and I was in my last year of Cornell. And I really wanted to go to uh, Georgetown Law. It was just the number one school in the country, and I just wanted that. And I got waitlisted at uh, Georgetown. It's like you have a shot of getting in as long as you continue to apply pressure. I just started harassing the dean of students. His name was Dean Bellamy. This is, you know, before the age of the internet and email. All we had was, you know, the telephone. I just started calling him like every other day. From spring of that year up until towards the end of the summer, I still hadn't been accepted to Georgetown. And I, I didn't see any other alternatives but me being a student at Georgetown. All these past four years I had been at college, and now it's just like nothing. During the day, I'm like stressed out. At the Paradise Garage, it was like complete release, complete escape. The Paradise Garage, in a sense, was kind of like this huge cavernous nightclub. It's like people are dancing. There's like a movie screen in one room. Like people are, you know, having sex in the corner. Paradise Garage served no alcohol, but they had this elaborate bar. It's just an elaborate bar, and they serve like, you know, ice cold water, ice cold fruit punch, and just like the most succulent of fruits, like apples and oranges and bananas and, you know, all of these like nutrients. After a set of dancing, you were completely exhausted. You were completely dehydrated. If you were a regular at the Paradise Garage, after three or four hours of dancing, you were totally drenched totally drenched. You bought a bag, a gym bag with you, bought an additional pair of shorts, always bought a change of clothes. First couple of times I went, I was like, I don't get it. But I decided to go a third time. Must have been about one o'clock in the morning. 
and there was this Latino guy across the street. He looked like Luis Guzman. This guy sells mescaline. I was curious. I decided to buy a tab of mescaline, took the mescaline, went inside Paradise Garage, and the minute it hit, everything made sense. The effect of it was like being high on shrooms. You're, you're, you're at the right state of mind, and then all of a sudden you feel like kind of like this transformation where you're going through this portal. And it's kind of like a little uncomfortable because you're not fully in control of like your motor skills. And it just took me to this place where it was just really euphoric. Um, I had a lot of energy. Everything was intensely funny. So it was just like amazing laughter, like just laughing at anything, silliest things. What made this drug the drug of choice for the Paradise Garage, just consistent music. And so you would start dancing, or I would start dancing, like say at two o'clock, and not realize I was dancing for three hours until five in the morning. The house music was just, you know, it was like kind of like a religious experience. You know, it was kind of like sexual, it was exciting. Um, there were times it was scary, um, because in, in, the, in the throng of all the people, I'd look in people's faces, and you could actually see people's spirits. The DJ, Larry LeVan, was one of the best DJs um, ever to hit the turntables in New York City. Larry LeVan was tall, uh, dark-skinned, lean, kind of like a short haircut, and just, you know, just real slender, and unassuming until he was behind the turntables, and then this guy became a maestro. But he looked, he looked regal. And I think he knew, you know, that he was the best DJ in New York City. You know, you play like a, this urban record that you, you did hear on the, on the radio, like Tanya Gardner's Heartbeat. And then he would just start building the crescendo. Like he'd play like Grace Jones's Pull Up to My Bumper. He'd play Marshall Jefferson's um, Gotta Have House. When he hit his peak, it was just primal. It was just fucking primal. You know, at times all you wanted to do was just fuck. He would take a break and there'd be no music for like about a minute or so. And you'd just be gathering yourself. And then he would start again. And, and it was, and you felt safe. Like it was kind of like a, like a plane ride in a sense. Like you, you arrived at this other side of this night. What was amazing was you'd find somebody, you'd be dancing for like hours and you'd be like, let's take a break. And you go up to the deck and then the sunlight would hit you because you would know that it was seven in the morning because you were really out of your mind at the time. This one particular night, get to the venue, pop the pill, I'm in and I'm dancing, and I'm tripping, and I'm having the best time of my life. It was like towards the end of August, and there was kind of like this feeling of unease that I had because my future was uncertain. I'm in there, and I run into one of my best friends from high school, uh, Sam Galloway. When I'm tripping, I'm like, yo, Sam, you know? I'm out of my fucking mind. Sam asked me a simple question. He's like, Reg, what are you doing next year? I explained to them, I'm waitlisted at Georgetown. It's stressing me out. 
I'm gonna take the year off. I'm probably gonna work. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I really don't know, but fuck it. You know, the night is young. It's five in the morning. Let's dance, you know? And his girlfriend was like, but my aunt dates the dean of students. And I was like, wait a minute. All of a sudden, when she said that, everything stopped. Like, the music stopped. Like, the, the, the rush of the mescaline stopped. And it was just this, like, intense focus. I was like, wait a minute. You mean Dean Bellamy, your aunt dates Dean Bellamy? She's like, yeah, she's been dating for a long time. And maybe I could arrange for you to talk to my aunt. Once she said that, I was like, are you bullshitting me? She's like, I'm not bullshitting you. Oh my God, this is this is this is this journey that I've been on. Like this is this trek that I've been on, and I was about to give up hope. And now all of a sudden there's this like weird glimmer of like possibilities that this might be the opportunity for me to get into Georgetown. Go home. The drug wears off. And all I'm thinking about is what time should I call her? What time should I call her? That Sunday night, I call her aunt. And her aunt like has this kind of like this southern kind of like bubbly kind of like accent. She's like, oh, you've been trying to talk to Teddy. He hasn't called you back. I'm going to talk to Teddy. Baby, that's not right. Watch, mark my word, you're going to get in. And I'm like, is this fucking happening? Is this fucking happening? Call Dean Bellamy, the same person that I've called. I must have called him at least 200 times. I call him, he's like, Hello, Reginald, yes. I spoke to so-and-so. I'm expecting your call. I was like, Dean Bellamy, I want to meet you face-to-face. I just want to meet you face-to-face. Finally, the door that had been shut for all these months, there was a crack. I meet Dean Bellamy. We talk for about 20 minutes. And I'm like, dude, like, I've been trying to get in. You know, I just give him my life story, you know, first-generation American. I'm from Cornell. I'm a good student. You will never, you will not regret admitting me to Georgetown. That Monday morning, the following Monday, I got a Western Union saying I got admitted to Georgetown. <sighs> Felt like I won the World Series. I don't know where I would be. If it wasn't for Larry Levan and the Paradise Garage. I mean, that's like asking, like, you know, the, the, the moments that you knew transformed your life. Where would you be? I wouldn't be here. I could almost say with certainty that I wouldn't be here. After the break, we're going to learn more about Larry Levan, the man who made the Paradise Garage the kind of place where getting high on mescaline could get you admitted to law school. Yes. Who is this man that Reggie referred to as the maestro? Stick around to find out. Welcome back. Welcome back. So when Reggie told us this story, obviously the whole thing was amazing. But one thing that stuck out was that DJ, Larry LeVan. Because it seems like somehow the scene he created at the Paradise Garage was so magical that it could, like, you know, get someone into law school. So we wanted to know, you know, what was this guy's deal? And how is he so good at making magic happen? And today, you have someone in the studio who can tell us more about him. So everybody, please 
Eric, I guess you're the only person in the room. Yes. Everybody, please. Eric, please <laughs> say what's up to the newest member of the Nod team, producer Emmanuel Barry. Hi. Hey. How's it going? This is my first time in here with you guys, like, doing a story. It's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Emmanuel, you, you went digging around to learn more about Larry LeVan. Tell us what you found out. So he was actually a pretty big deal. His taste in music a lot of times dictated what was being played on mainstream radio stations in New York, which influences what's being played across the country. He was one of the first people to have a record label as a DJ, one of the first to have a record deal. Uh, He had his own band. He's sort of like the first superstar DJ before, you know, it became the pastime of rich white kids. (laughs) So, like, back when it, like, (laughs) you were really doing something? Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So, when you are doing a story on someone, you typically try and find interviews of them, right? Yeah. I tried doing that with Larry LeVan, but it became clear pretty quickly (laughs) that that was not going to be an easy thing. Couldn't find many print interviews, couldn't find many audio or video interviews. But I did manage to find this one interview clip. Uh, It's from 1981. It's an interview with Mark Riley, who's a journalist at a New York radio station, uh, WLIB. So... Earlier, we heard what it was like from Reggie's perspective to be in the crowd while, you know, Larry LeVan is up in his DJ booth playing and spinning. Uh, And in this clip, Larry talks about what it was like from his perspective, you know, being behind the turntables up high above everybody else. Mm. It's a little hard to hear, but it kind of gives you the sense of his demeanor. He's kind of like a chill, laid-back dude. Mm -hmm. I I, I look out of my booth, and I watch the people who come to the club all the time. And I watch some of them change, you know, when they first come out, and um, I watch how they get into the club and how they get into socializing. Because the first thing that the music does, it creates a single focal point for all of them to get into, and out of this, they start to socialize. You can tell he cares so much about, like, this relationship that he's built with these people who come out every Friday or every Saturday night just to hear him play. It's so weird because, like, you describe Larry LeVan as this, like, super influential guy. But at the same time, there's, like, not a lot that's known about him. So, like, how how did you learn more? I had to go straight to the people who knew him and the people who knew about the scene that he came up in to see if I could paint a picture of the man who redefined what it meant to be a DJ. Well, Emmanuel, go ahead. Paint us a picture. Okay, well, it all starts when Larry was a little kid. Back then, there were two things that he loved, music and building things. One of Larry's old friends, David DePino, told me a story that perfectly captures this. His mother once told us a story when he was five years old, and um, there was a house party. He took over putting the music on the record player, and um, at the end of the party, he took apart the turntable and rebuilt it at five. She said if she left him alone for 10 minutes, she'd walk in the kitchen and find him taking apart the toaster and rebuilding it. Larry was a teenager in the 70s, just as underground parties started to pop up across New York City. They offered a private and safe space for LGBTQ folks and people of color to dance, express, and create. Larry started going to clubs when he was young, just 15. And his favorite spot was called The Loft, an invite-only weekly dance party thrown in an actual loft apartment. 
He was drawn into this downtown uh, New York City dance culture. This is Tim Lawrence. He wrote a book about American dance music in the 70s. It's called Love Saves the Day. Lawrence says the loft was a space for everyone. There was never a sense that the loft catered to one demographic group. It was always mixed. Nobody is checking your identity at the door. Everyone is welcome. At these dance parties, Larry found the community he didn't have growing up. His father left when he was a kid. He was born with a hole in his heart, so he was a sick kid. He'd have bad asthma attacks and he would faint in school. He was gay. He had a unique sense of style. He'd sometimes dye his hair orange and he liked to wear bright hot pants. He was an outsider. But at these parties, Larry wasn't a black gay misfit from Brooklyn. At the loft, he could be whoever he wanted to be. There, he belonged. That feeling of acceptance was so powerful that Larry decided to make a career out of recreating it. As a teenager, he started working in the clubs. At first, he was just blowing up balloons and working the lights. But in 1973, he got his first DJing gig. It was at a place called the Continental Baths, an actual bathhouse. The scene was pretty crazy. You might be wondering why a bathhouse would even need a DJ. Well, it's because the bathhouse itself was one big party. Tim Lawrence described the scene to me. It's a kind of sauna, there's a swimming pool, and there are private rooms where men, gay men can effectively retire for sex. So Larry was providing the soundtrack for this place where men were bathing, dancing, and sleeping together. And he did this alongside his best friend, Frankie Knuckles, who would go on to become the godfather of house music. So you know, Larry was in good company. Tim told me a story that Frankie once told him about his time DJing at the Bass. There was one time he, you know, he and Larry were in the, in the bathhouses, and he, he thought that they were there for eight hours. And they came, when they came out, they discovered they'd been there for something like two and a half days. You could imagine why. Steam, no windows, drugs, and dancing. The bathhouse was in its own time-space continuum. Larry worked at the bathhouse and other clubs for several years. But at age 23, he caught his big break. Michael Brody, one of Larry's friends, had decided to open up a new club. But Brody was a businessman. He didn't necessarily know how to create a cool dance club. And that's where Larry came in. Brody asked Larry to be the resident DJ of his new club, and he'd let Larry do whatever he wanted to do with the place. But first, they had to actually find a space. And as luck would have it, Larry's friend, David DePino, came across the perfect spot. On the front of the building, there was a for rent sign. And I said, oh, friends of mine are looking for a club in New York. And I took a pen and paper and I wrote down the number. The building he found was huge, a parking garage, in fact, on the outskirts of Soho. Larry and Brody decided to take it. There was a lot of work to do to create the perfect party space. New walls, flooring. But most important to Larry, and one of the things that Garage would become known for, was the sound system. It was Larry's pet project, and he spent countless hours tinkering with engineers to create a unique sound experience. It was powerful and loud, but at the same time, crystal clear. At the Garage, you could feel the music in your body. But for Larry, building a club was not just about a great sound system or a decked out space. 
Larry wanted to recapture the feeling of belonging and community that he'd found at the loft. The club would be members only, but anyone could become a member. In 1978, when the Paradise Garage officially opened, all of these elements came together to create a party space unlike any other, a place where each night had the potential to be life-changing. The person running the show, Larry. In his booth at the garage, Larry emanated a vibe of effortless cool. He was tall and fit and lean, often sporting a tight t-shirt and jeans. And from his perch above the dance floor, he would mesmerize and manipulate the party, making each person in a crowd of a thousand think he was playing music just for them. David DePino watched it all happen from the booth. I remember once me and him were standing at the, the booth. And I said, Larry, can you play this record? It was pretty new. And I love it was my favorite. I said, so I could just run down and dance for one record. He says, not yet. And I said, why? And he said, because it's just not the right time for the record. And I said, what does that mean? He said, everything is about timing. He said, there are certain records you could play three times a night so you could split it up. There are certain records that can only be played once a night and the room is waiting for it. And you got to decide when is that moment? Did you work them up enough to when you put that on, that's the cherry on the Sunday, Or are you wasting it? Larry would definitely play crowd pleasers. But he wasn't one of those DJs that just played whatever was popular. He had his own music agenda. If Larry loved a new song, he wanted his dancers to love it too. Sometimes all it would take is playing a track at the right moment to make it a hit. Other times, Larry was more forceful. I was there one night when he played one record eight, times. Wow. Do you remember what the record was? I don't remember what the because he did it to a lot of records. Not that many times, but one night he said, I played this record 18 times tonight. I played the instrumental four times, different ways. I played it from the break. I played it from just the last part of the ending. I played the whole instrumental. He said, I kept slipping it in over other records. He says, this one was hard. They just didn't want to accept it. But they did. Larry was trying to teach the crowd and mold their musical taste. And often it worked. Big-time radio DJs would come to the garage and borrow his records, sometimes taking them right out of his hands. The next day, you'd hear them playing on mainstream radio. The garage's popularity continued to grow into the 80s. While clubs like the legendary Studio 54 existed as a space for the rich and famous, a place to see and be seen, the garage was where famous people went to hang out with everyday people. Acts like Madonna and Grace Jones would perform. Patti LaBelle and Boy George would stop by the DJ booth just to hang out with Larry. But not every night at the garage was full of fun. He was very moody. He could come in in a bad mood and make everybody stay away from him the whole night. He could come in in a wonderful mood and and make everybody twinkle-toed and feel like they were just sprinkled with fairy dust from Tinkerbell and be happy and wonderful. So you never knew what you were going to get. And his mood could also go from one to the other in one night. Larry's moodiness wasn't the only problem. He got addicted to drugs. Okay, so it may not be a shocker that someone in the New York City club scene at the time would use drugs, but most people, they took uppers. Larry did the opposite. 
uh, he started to take heroin and and from the pretty much that point onwards uh, uh you know arguably just a little bit before um he started to become far less prolific by now it was the late 80s and larry was going through his own struggles so were a lot of gay men he knew aids had become a real epidemic in york and it hit larry close to home In 1987, the club's lease was up. The Neighborhood Association didn't want a place in the area that drew such a diverse crowd. So they were being kicked out of the building. Brody started looking for new locations. And then one day, Brody called everyone into his office to talk about next steps. DePino was there. Nobody had seen him for a couple of months. Um, He came in, he looked not well. And he said to everybody, I'm not doing well. Brody had AIDS. He was really sick, and he couldn't open another club. There will be no garage. It's closing in six months, and that will be it. I want to let you know so you could all look for other work. And it sort of drove Larry mad. I mean, first of all, he didn't like the fact that he wasn't told privately. He went on a downhill binge. Larry got thrown for a loop. It wasn't only the owner of the club dying and the club closing. It was the person for the last more than 10 years that was everything to him. He was the father Larry really didn't grow up with. So I think it it just devastated him that he was not only going to lose the garage, but he was losing Michael too. For 10 years, Larry had helped build a space where people from all walks gathered to lose themselves to dancing and music. And now... It was all over. The final party at the garage was thrown in September of 1987. It lasted two days. Grace Jones and the artist Keith Herring stopped by. And Larry was at his finest. It was rumored that for his final song, of his final set at the Paradise Garage, he played the tramps, Where Do We Go From Here?, After the garage closed, Larry struggled with drugs and his career. He didn't have a club of his own anymore. He eventually found his way back to music. He started making guest appearances, and in 1992, Larry toured in Japan. I got a phone call the day before I was on my way to Japan, and as soon as I answered the phone, I said, hello, he went, hi. I said, hi. And we really hadn't seen each other much, but the one or two times we'd run into each other, we were talking, because prior to that, we weren't talking one of our little spats. And uh, he said, guess where I am? I said, I don't know. And he said, I'm in Japan. I said, I'm coming to Japan tomorrow. He said, I know. I'm looking at your poster right now. He said, I can't wait to see you. We're going to have a ball. And I said, fabulous. The first night I was playing in Japan, I kept watching the door all night. Oh, I was waiting for it to open up and Larry come running in with his hands in the air and he never showed up. And I said, he just worked me. He just played me. Made me get all excited he was coming and didn't bother to show up, that bitch. And little did I know he was in the hospital. Larry had fallen ill in Japan, so he returned to the States. Over the years, Larry's drug use had done a lot of damage to his already fragile heart. Back in New York, Larry was in and out of the hospital. 
And in November of 1992, he died of heart failure. He was 38 years old. The day Larry died and I went to the crematorium to pick up his ashes, and he was placed in my hand. I was alone in a room holding Larry in my hands, and I started to cry, and I made a promise. I'll never let them forget you. And it's a promise David and others who knew Larry have worked to keep. If you walk by the Paradise Garage today, they're scaffolding up. The building is no more, torn down earlier this year. But David and others hope that someday there will be a street sign near the building that reads Larry LeVan Way. I always figured one day maybe this little kid is walking with his father and says, Daddy, why does that street have two names? And the father says, Google it. And the kid looks it up, and it's named after a DJ who opened up a club that was a democracy, that was open to all fates, race, genders, every, everything. You were equal once you walked in the door. And I thought it was a nice story to tell. And it's nice for DJs now that are making millions of dollars a year in their careers are standing on the shoulders of these DJs that they may not even know their names. That was an incredible story. And Larry LeVan lived one hell of a life, I have to say. And also Reggie Osei, who you heard from at the top of the show, he has actually made a mixtape of a typical Larry LeVan set that you might hear on a night at the Paradise Garage. Do you want to hear that mixtape? Because if you do, you should subscribe to our newsletter and you just might get that mixtape in your inbox. Go to gimletmedia.com newsletter to sign up. And just a quick note about Reggie. Reggie Osei is a dear friend and a mentor. We got the chance to work together and got to know him while he was hosting another Gimlet show, Mogul. Reggie is also host of The Combat Jack Show and one of the founders of the Loudspeakers Network, known for some of the biggest podcasts out there, like Breed. Without him laying the track with The Combat Jack Show and Loudspeakers, shows like For Colored Nerds and The Nod might not exist. Reggie's commitment to hip-hop and podcasting just truly can't be matched. Unfortunately, not long ago, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. He's been nothing less than an inspiration and more than that, a source of encouragement for scores of people. We are supporting him in his new fight to combat cancer. Reggie told me that out of this situation, he's hoping to raise awareness about cancer risks and early detection. African-American men are at significantly higher risk for colon cancer. So we'd like to encourage all the men listening to get your colon screened, especially if you're 45 and over, and even earlier if you have a history of the disease in your family. The best way to treat cancer is to catch it early. For more information on the topic, you can visit the American Cancer Society website at cancer.org. The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and Emmanuel Barry, with production assistance from Wallace Mack. Thank you to James T. Green for bringing Reggie's Paradise Garage story to life. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Annie Rose Strasser. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. 
Additional engineering assistance this week from Haley Shaw. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show from Bobby Lord, Smoke M2D, Jupiter, Chili Willy, and Daniel M. Peterson.